Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are with us here as we start a new series entitled Then Came Jesus, the four Sundays and then Christmas Eve prior to Christmas Day. These are really standalone messages. The first two will be somewhat historical in nature, and then we'll pivot and talk about the Christmas story as we build towards Christmas Day. But one of my favorite studies is to look at what the world looked like before Jesus, then the teachings of Jesus, then came Jesus, as they were just singing, a baby will come, and then what did the world look like afterwards? In John chapter 1, the Bible says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And then it says that we are to be, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. He's the light that came into the world. Now we're to be that light. And we're really starting our series, uh, Then Came Jesus, with that verse, uh, you are the light of the world. And we'll end with that because we always, it's tradition here to end our Christmas Eve service with Matthew chapter 5, you're the light of the world. And then do the candle lighting on our Christmas Eve service all across the worship center, everybody holding candles. And it's just a great, great time. So we will bookend this series with you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, we know the miracle of the early church. How did a ragtag group of persecuted handful of people, how did they eventually conquer Rome? And we know there was a supernatural element in it, the miracle of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting sometimes to look at it through a historical lens. Uh, There was a secular sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity in which he did an analysis of the sociological factors that led to the attraction of Christ, the growth of the church in the years uh, like basically from when uh, Christ from about 30 AD until uh, Constantine made it the official religion of the Roman Empire in 325 AD. And in the introduction to his book, and again, this is a secular sociological view of the impact of Christ. He writes, he was a teacher and miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? That is the question that brings us here. Now we know that there was more going on than meets the eye. And yet to historians, it is an absolute miracle. How did this ragtag persecuted minority dominate and eventually conquer? How did Christ conquer Rome? And so there are two factors, the isolated, that I want to talk about here today as inspiration for how the early church conquered Rome. The first was mercy in times of need. You see, Jesus touched lepers, and so he taught his followers to touch lepers. Uh, It reminds me, and even though it's not from the time period we're looking at, of Father Damien in the 1800s, who was sent to the Hawaiian island of Molokai, which was a leper colony at that time. And he was ordered when he went, don't touch anybody. But he didn't listen to his superiors. He listened to Jesus. 
And he touched the lepers. And for 16 years, he ministered in the name of Jesus to the lepers of the leper colony on Molokai. And eventually, after 16 years, he contracted the disease and eventually died from it there on that island. Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then this is almost like a list of the ministries that our church does here in the heart of Pomona and in our community. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. We're now the major food bank area uh, for this part of the community in which we live. Uh, we And the homeless meals that go on as well. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. Clothing ministry on Tuesday morning clothes thousands of people throughout the year. And we become the center in this part of, of the, our community, of this part of the area, our city and beyond. Uh, the place where people get their clothing. I needed clothing and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. You think of our hospice programs and our parish nurse programs. I was in prison. You came to visit me. I think of our prison ministries that go on. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then the followers of Jesus began to teach certain things like this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, atheists mock Christians and say we have a pie in the sky uh, orientation towards life. That is, it doesn't matter what's going on in this life. Eventually, if you trust in Christ, you'll get to heaven. And we, and we unashamedly say, yeah, that's true. But Rodney Stark says it's fascinating in his study of history that Christianity not only teaches pie in the sky, as the atheists accuse us of, but Christianity also puts the pie on the table. It's kind of a good Thanksgiving illustration, isn't it? It puts the pie on the table. You know, they actually did a study based on ancient tombstones, and they found that early Christians outlived their pagan neighbors. So yes, there was the hope of heaven, but there was also the benefit of a better life, this side of heaven. Now, by the way, just in a little bit of an aside, when I use the term pagan, this is not meant to be a sneering, arrogant term. It's actually a technical term. Much as Gentile simply means non-Jews, there were Jews, and then anybody who wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. In the same way, it was a technical term, not an arrogant, put-down kind of term, that everybody who, there was Christ followers, and then anybody who was not a follower of Christ was technically a pagan. So it was a, a technical term, and that's how I'm using it uh, throughout this study. Now, Christianity started out as a rural religion in Galilee, but it soon became an urban phenomenon. Uh, it, it swept through the cities of the Roman Empire. It was headquartered in Jerusalem. It took birth in the larger cities of the Roman Empire. Now, they were small by Southern California standards. Corinth had about 50,000 people. Thessalonica had 35,000 people. Athens had 75,000 people. Even Rome which was the largest city in the world at that time, had just 450,000 people. So they may have been small by Southern California standards, but they were crowded. Manhattan has about 100, Manhattan in New York City, has about 100 people per acre. Uh, Calcutta in Rome has 122 people per acre. 
Rome, ancient Rome, had 302 people per acre. Three times as dense as New York City. Uh, almost three times as dense as Calcutta, India. Because of this, they were, had this obsessive fear of fire and buildings collapsing. That was their biggest fear. Because fire would just sweep through and wipe them out or buildings collapsing because they were so uh, densely uh, stuffed in. In Rome, there was only one private house per 26 blocks of apartments. That's how crowded they were. This presented a huge sanitation problem. You can only imagine. I won't go into too much detail because you want to go to lunch after this. But it was awful. Uh, the Tiber River that ran through Rome, they said you could smell it. Historians said you could smell it from miles away. They had open sewage dis, uh, ditches right through uh, the city streets, which would be filled with all the accumulation of human waste. Can you imagine all the human waste that a household produces in these ditches that went right down the street, and they would actually push human corpses of all ages into these ditches? So you'd walk down the street and they'd be filled with human waste and sewage and also the corpses of, of people who had died of all ages, including children and, and babies as well. It was just a filthy, filthy existence. There were swarms all the time of flies, mosquitoes, and other insects. They did an analysis of decayed human fecal remains in an ancient Jerusalem cesspool. Who devotes their life to that kind of study? I mean, just an analysis of decayed human fecal remains in an ancient Jerusalem cesspool. They found an abundance of tapeworm and whipworm eggs. It means that almost everybody in the Roman Empire, in the cities, had, was just filled with worms. Uh, disease was rampant. Crime was way worse than it is today. When the sun went down, everybody boarded up their homes, got their weapons out, and just hoped to survive the night because of the crime that was present. And then came Jesus. Then a baby was born. This is what the world looked like on that first Christmas Eve 2,000 years ago. And in the middle of all that, Christianity became an island of mercy and security in a very scary and cold and dark world. Then came Jesus. Do you know the concept of mercy was basically non-existent before Jesus came into the world? The whole idea of helping another person. You'll see some of those quotes there in your study outline. Rodney Stark writes, in contrast, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, especially among the brainy people, the Platos, the Socrates, the Aristotles, Mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief, it is contrary to justice. E.A. Judge writes, classical philosophers taught that mercy indeed is not governed by reason at all. And humans must learn to curb the impulse. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. Pity was a defect of character, unworthy of the wise, and excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. Now, in contrast to that, the followers of Jesus taught, Dear children, let us not love with words or speak, but with actions and in truth. It was a radical concept. It was radical because you might find a little bit of mercy in the Roman Empire, for people that were in your immediate family or your immediate circle of friends, your clan, your tribe, but you'd never find it for your enemies or for anybody outside of your immediate circle. But here in contrast to that 
came the followers of Jesus, and Jesus had taught them to love their enemies, to even care for those outside of your circle of family and friends. Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage, and he was killed for his faith in the third century. He writes, there is nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love. Thus the good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. This was radical stuff. Uh, Next page of your study outline, uh, the esteemed historian Paul Johnson writes, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services. Tertullian, who was a great leader in the church, wrote around 200 AD, these gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund. Now, this is a fascinating quote. Because you tend to think, well, no wonder the early Christians just helped out so many people in need. It was boring back then. They didn't have the temptations that we have today. They didn't have Las Vegas, and they didn't have Black Friday, and they didn't have cars to buy and RVs to buy and golf courses to go on. You know, they just had this boring life. You got extra money, why not give it away? Absolutely not true. Look at at this fascinating quote. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund. For they are not taken thence and spent on feasts. They were tempted by big parties and drinking bouts. They were tempted to spend their money in the bars and eating houses. They were tempted to take all their money at fancy restaurants. But to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls of destitute means and parents and of old persons confined now to the house, Such too as have suffered shipwreck, which was the equivalency of like bankruptcy for us or losing your job. And if there happens to be any in the mines, many times followers of Christ would be condemned as slaves in the mines or banished to the islands like John in the island of Patmos or shut up in prisons as Paul was for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church. They became the nurslings of their confession. A deacons, got the deacons on the front row, so I can preach right at them, look right in their eyes, wag my finger at the deacons. This is from the Apostolic Confession. Deacons are to be doers of good works, exercising a general supervision day or night, neither scorning the poor nor respecting the person of the rich. They must ascertain who are in distress and not exclude them from a share in church funds, compelling also the well-to-do to put money aside for good works. Okay? They, they were not to spend them on the drinking houses or the eating houses, but they were to give it to the momentum campaign. That's what it says in the Latin. <laughs> Ancient translation, just really scary stuff. Just kidding, kind of. Okay, here we go. Um, and, and they didn't just talk about it, they did it. In 251 AD, the Bishop of Rome uh, wrote to the Bishop of Antioch, and talked about how just in the Roman church alone, they were supporting 1,500 widows, which back then was really essential because they didn't have social security, they didn't have life insurance policies or retirement funds. Uh, Widows were absolutely dependent just simply on the mercy of the church. And so uh, they had 1,500 widows just in the church at Rome alone that they they were uh, supporting. Now this was noticed all across the Roman Empire. But it was really highlighted during the time of two great plagues uh, during the time of the early church. The first plague was in 165 AD. We believe it was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. It lasted for 15 years. It killed between one in four people and one in three people. Killed a fourth to a third of the population at that time. 
Another one hits 100 years later. Another great plague came. Uh, Bishop Dionysius uh, writes about this around 251 uh, AD. You'll see it there in your study outline. At the first onset of the disease, they, the pagans, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest. As soon as one of their family members showed a touch of smallpox, they threw them outdoors into these ditches to die that were running through the streets there, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Now, everybody fled for the foothills, but the Christians stayed in the city. The Christians stayed in the city at the corner of Holt and Gary in the ancient texts. Why did they do that? Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is to act like Jesus, to touch the smallpox victims, to touch the lepers, to, to, to do mercy to people in need. To live is Christ. And if we die because of that, that's just merely, that's just gain. Um, uh, the pagan priests had fled the city and set up their temples in the foothills around the city. The Christians stayed, and they saved a, a huge number of, of people uh, by their staying. Look back at uh, Dionysius again of Alexandria. Most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with this departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, that's pastors, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that in death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. A huge reduction in the death rate because of this. Uh, quite elementary nursing, historians say, will greatly reduce mortality. Christian nursing could have reduced death by as much as two-thirds is what historians are estimating. Now, it wasn't just Christians they ministered to, but their own pagan neighbors and relatives as well. And so through the hands and feet of these Christ followers, Jesus began to change the hearts of the people in the Roman Empire, one person at a time. Now, that's our DNA that's, that's our heritage. That's our legacy, particularly for those of us at PFB Purpose Church. I mean, why is it that you live here in Pomona? Why is it that you drive past churches there your, your car is going to be safer in the parking lot while you're at church? You won't get hit up by homeless people as you walk in. Maybe it's more convenient to your home. What is it in your heart that causes you to drive to the corner of Holt and Gary? I believe that for us that are part of this church, it's part of the echo of the DNA of the early church. It says this is our heritage, and we feel that connectedness with them down through the ages. You know, I want to be careful not to overstate this because our, there are many wonderful uh, organizations and churches across the city of Pomona working with the homeless population, but our church is one of the major ones through our ministries. You are part of that through your giving 
um, through those of you that work with our meals program and giving out food and clothing and furniture and homeless ministries. And, and those of you that just simply as you walk into church, as you encounter a homeless person asking you for money. And by the way, we recommend that you not give money, that you uh, point them to the ministries of our church. That's our recommendation. You do as God leads you to do. We, we're, you do as God leads you to do. We're not, but, but our recommendation would be that you not do that. But we can treat them as we encounter with compassion and with dignity. And, and God uses that. Do you know that just this week, article came out in the local newspaper that they did a study and Pomona homelessness has dropped in half from 10 years ago. A typically night, cold winter night 10 years ago, uh, there would be about 1,300 homeless people on the streets of Pomona. That number is now down to 600. And I think you and your involvement should, should take joy in that, should take satisfaction in that, because that is what Jesus has called us to do. My command is this, Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So the first um, thing that they noted was mercy in times of need. That's the first factor that secular sociologists and historians notice. But the second was the elevation of the status of women. You'll see in these passages I put there in your study outline, in Luke chapter 8, women were there throughout his ministry. In Luke 23, they were there in his crucifixion. In chapter 24, they were there at his resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, they were there at the birth of the church. In Acts chapter 5, they were there as it grew. They were in the leadership of the church. In the first opening of the book of Romans, uh, Paul greets the leaders of that church, the prominent people of that church, and he mentions 18 men and 15 women. If you look at Romans chapter 16, at the end of the book, he talks about a prominent leader by the name of, of, of Phoebe. And this was absolutely uh, radical for its time. Why was it so radical? And I'm going to talk about Greeks and Romans because there was slightly different situation for, for each of them, for the Greeks and the Romans, but they were basically the same. Neither Greek nor Roman women had much to say about anything, including who they married. They married very young, often before puberty, to far older men. Husbands could divorce them for any reason, but a wife could only get a divorce if a male relative sought one on her behalf. A, Greek's wife, a Greek wife's father or brother could obtain her divorce against her wishes. Roman and Greek husbands had absolute power to put an unwanted infant to death or to force a woman to have an abortion. Roman wives had very limited property rights. Greek women had none. Neither Greek nor Roman women could be party to contracts. In contrast to that, they did a study of Christian burials in the catacombs under Rome. And based on 3,733 cases, they found that Christian women were nearly as likely as Christian men to be commemorated with lengthy inscriptions. Uh, you'll see what Rodney Stark has to say about that. This near equality in the commemoration of males and females is something that is peculiar to Christians and sets them apart from the non-Christian populations of the city. This was true not only of adults, but also of children, as Christians lamented the loss of a daughter as much as of a son, which was especially unusual compared with other religious groups in Rome. Exposure of unwanted infants where they would take a baby they didn't want and just leave it in the dumps outside 
of the cities of that time, it was widespread practice across the Roman Empire, especially for baby girls. And boy, we love our baby girls, don't we? We love our daughters so much. Aren't you glad that Jesus came into the world? You know, I, uh, there's this uh, one there in your study outline that is just such an ugly, stark, a haunting line from a letter. There's this letter from a husband. He's away working, and he writes back to his pregnant wife back home. And if you look at the letter, it's, it's a very loving letter. But in the middle of this loving letter to his wife is this cold, dark line. If good luck to you, you should bear offspring. If it is male, let it live. But if it's female, expose it. Even in large families, it was incredibly rare to raise more than one daughter. It was almost unheard of. They did a study of 60 inscriptions, and they found that out of 600 family inscriptions, only six of them raised more than one uh, baby girl and didn't expose it and, and, and let them die. Now, uh, Roman girls married at a tender age, often before puberty, uh, the great Roman historian Plutarch said that most, many of them were married when they were 12 years old. 20% of pagan women were 12 or younger when married. 4% were only 10. In contrast, only 7% of Christian women were under 13, and nearly half of Christian women had not married until they were 18 or older. Now, it wasn't just a marriage in name only. They would consummate them at these ages. Reports of this happening in the Roman Empire were for child brides as young as seven years of age. Plutarch, who himself was a Roman, condemned Roman marriage customs as cruel, reporting, quote, the hatred and fear of girls forced contrary to nature. And then came Jesus. Then a baby came. You know, we look at a, a passage like Matthew 19, verse 9, and think it's kind of a strict passage. Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And we look at that today through our cultural lens and say, boy, Jesus was really strict there. Do you know that from their cultural lens, they would say that is radical stuff for the purpose of protecting women from a husband's whim and divorcing them for any reason. These would be radical terms like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Or in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Or words like mutual consent. I mean, everybody in antiquity prized female sexual purity. Everybody through all of history has been for that one. But only followers of Christ have been against the double standard where it applies to women, but it doesn't apply to men. Men just do whatever. Only followers of Christ say that sexual is impurity is important for men and uh, for women as well. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, uh, Rodney Stark says that most likely Christians had more sex in their marriage relationship than pagans for a couple of reasons. Number one, their brides usually were married when they were at a more mature age. And number two, the Christian men didn't have a bunch of prostitutes and mistresses on the side. Now, uh, along with this uh, going on was the whole um, issue of, uh, of, of, of infertility. Uh, the main reason that they married such young girls 
is because of a shortage of women. This, these practices of female exposure and abortion produced a huge disparity of many more men than women and a shortage of women due to the killing of female babies. And we see this happening all over the world today. Happening all over the world today. And it's beginning to happen in America as well due to sex selection and abortions. It's starting to happen here as it's happened through history and as it's happened in different places around the world. The Romans also had problems of low fertility rates. Uh, Back to Rodney Stark, the primary reason for low Roman fertility was that men did not want the burden of families and acted accordingly. Many avoided fertility by having sex with prostitutes rather than with their wives, and they had many infants exposed. Pagan husbands also forced their wives to have abortions, which also added to female mortality and often resulted in subsequent infertility. Plato, the great thinker of his time, wrote the book The Republic about what a perfect society would look like. And he made abortions mandatory for women who conceived after the age of 40. Aristotle agreed with him. He said there must be a fixed limit, a limit fixed to procreation of offspring. And if any conceive in contravention of these regulations, abortion must be practiced. In contrast to that is the Didache from 100 AD, which was kind of a church policy manual. It said, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. Aren't you glad Jesus came? And that's not even the most important part. The most important thing is that we're all on our way to hell. And because he came, there's a chance to go to heaven if we receive him as our Lord and Savior. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together to remember and to honor him. And uh, as we do that, everybody's welcome. You just need to know that you have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. You say, Glenn, how would I go about doing it? If I'd like to do it today, how would I do it? On the back of your program, you'll see a simple outline that says the three steps the Bible needs to, that we need to take. And then a little suggested prayer. And if you've prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to pray it today, what better way to prepare for the Christmas season than to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And if you do that in your heart, then you're open to sharing it publicly because by taking the bread and by taking the cup, we not only remember him, but we show outwardly that we too are followers of Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment right now to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.